This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Is COP26 a turning point for the planet or is it too late to stop climate change in its tracks? Well, that's the question at the heart of this week's Sunday debate as we're bringing together two leading experts to assess the impact of COP26 and whether it can really make a difference in the fight against climate change. It's a fascinating debate and it took place in partnership with Iberdrola and we hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the host, Kamal Ahmed, for more. Welcome to you all. Welcome to this energized debate, this new series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Iberdrola. So in the coming weeks, we'll be bringing together leading voices to discuss the biggest issue, frankly, which is energy, the environment and climate change. I'm your host, Kamal Ahmed. And tonight's question is pretty simple. Is COP26 a turning point for the planet? Now, before we begin, I'm going to ask you, the audience, to submit your pre-vote to get a sense of where your opinions lie. As we know, it's just three days to go. More than 190 world leaders will begin those discussions in Glasgow at the 26th Conference of the Parties, the annual summit organised by the United Nations to reach a consensus on how best to tackle climate change and keep to the Paris Agreement's goal of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius and a climate-neutral world by the middle of this century. But there is already division over whether this is an achievable goal. Is this, as Greta Thunberg has said, all so much blah, blah, blah? Even the Queen has been reported as questioning whether countries are really acting in the best interests of tackling climate change? Is there a clash between net zero and economic growth? Do we need more economic growth in the West? And with some of the biggest emitters, such as Russia, choosing not to attend, is there any way the summit can create real change? Are there historic bills the West should be doing more to pay rather than demanding emerging economies go net zero in the near future. 
Can COP26 be a turning point at this crucial moment in the planet's health? Now, that's the theme of tonight's debate. So let's get those results. And my goodness me, this is even closer than the Brexit vote. We have yes, 36%, no, 36%, and undecided 28%. So the question will be, will that mood change? So let's go to our fantastic speakers. And our first speaker is Keith Anderson. Keith Anderson is Chief Executive Officer at Scottish Power, which is a subsidiary of Iberdrola. And before his appointment as Chief Executive, he was CEO of Scottish Power Renewables and led Iberdrola's international offshore business. Keith, do start your opening five-minute statement. Failure is not an option. I'm going to say that again. Failure is not an option. It's one of the probably the most overused quotes, but I honestly couldn't think of a better use for the quote or a more appropriate context for the quote when you put it in the context of climate change. When you look at what's happening now around our planet, when you look at the, the, the potential for, for the impact of climate change over the next 10, 15, 20 years, honestly, you just can't see failure as being any kind of an option at all. So we need to tackle climate change. And society as a, a society as a world, we've moved through many shifts, societal shifts, planetary shifts, world shifts, technology shifts, all the way through our lives and our livelihoods. And those are points at time where we can redesign what we do. We can rebuild, reshape. Uh, some of those shifts are, uh, you know, come out of tragedies like, like war or, or very bad events, or some of them come out of massive shifts in innovation and technology. But it doesn't matter what, what, causes it, they create an opportunity. If you go back to the or the internet in 1990, if you look at the mass adoption of refrigeration, if you look at the invention of the combustion engine, the industrial revolution, which is a, in fact in many ways a very relevant one because the industrial revolution created Glasgow, which is where COP26 is going to be, and that turned Glasgow into the second city of the empire, and from there Glasgow has constantly regenerated itself. And that's what you can do with the societal shift. And I think from my point of view, when you look at those shifts in society, they create these massive opportunities for new invention, for innovation, for investment, for development. And climate change and COP26 is possibly the biggest opportunity from a societal shift we will ever, ever see as a country uh, or right across the whole of the world. It is without a doubt an opportunity to bring all of us together and if we tackle it properly, we all win uh, out of, of, of dealing with the opportunity and dealing with the challenge. And I think that's the way I look at COP26. So where are we? We are headed towards Glasgow. We're headed towards COP26. And we see the urgency around it. We've seen the need to tackle and to bring everybody together. We've got all the world's business leaders coming there. We've got politicians, climate activists, everybody turning up to Glasgow. And the goal of COP26 is to put in place the framework that means we stop the, the, the world heating up by more than one and a half degrees. And that is absolutely crucial to therefore to tackling climate change and stopping uh, the damage we are doing getting worse and worse and worse. And if COP26 goes well, 
then we will make a massive change and a massive difference to the future of the planet. And it will trigger 10 years, uh, 10, 15, 20 years of activity, of innovation, of investment, of grabbing that opportunity and changing the world and changing how we live uh, in this world. And I think that opportunity is too big and too important to miss. And that's why I believe we'll grab the opportunity at COP26. The other brilliant thing in the run-up to COP26, I think, is this is not just about politicians and governments anymore. COPs in the past have delivered so much in tackling climate change. You go back to 1997 to the Kyoto COP. You go back to 2015 to the Paris COP. And they were huge, big moments, huge, big societal shifts. The bigger opportunity with COP26 is it's not just about governments and politicians. Now, we actually have the whole of society wanting to tackle climate change. The public have bought into this. We have the whole of the business world lining up and gearing up to tackle climate change. And they are all pushing for the change and the momentum as well. Therefore, it's a much, much bigger shove and a much, much bigger push as we all come to Glasgow. And I think that lines up COP26 for a, for a huge success. Even if that success is built around the showcase, the showcase of what we've done in the UK, the showcase of the innovation and the new technology, the showcase of the change that we've made, the opportunity we create, the jobs we're creating, the economic wealth we can create from tackling climate change, that in and of its own would be a huge success coming out of COP26. And I am absolutely determined that, that me as an individual, we as a company, as Scottish Power, are going to be at the forefront of that debate and, and pushing forward that debate, working with citizens, working with customers, working with other businesses, working with politicians. And what we will deliver is a massive push forward and a massive step forward on the back of COP26 coming to Glasgow. And in the future, people won't be talking just about Kyoto or about Paris. They will have Glasgow firmly bashed into their brains as being the point at which we made a massive step forward in tackling climate change. Thank you. Thank you very much, Keith, for that uh, passionate opening five minutes. Now time for our second speaker tonight, Dieter Helm, Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford and Fellow in Economics at New College Oxford. Until November 2020, he was Independent Chair of the Natural Capital Committee, providing advice to the government on the sustainable use of a natural capital. Written, of course, several books, most recently Net Zero, in which he addresses the action we all need to take to tackle the climate emergency. And as Faye says, there's ability to buy that book. Dieter, the floor is yours for five minutes. Thank you, Kamal. And thank you very much for inviting me to this, this really important discussion. So this is a vote I'd like to lose. OK, it would delight me if Glasgow was a turning point. But I'm very sceptical about that. I'm sceptical about the overall approach. I'm sceptical about uh, what it is that people think they're going to achieve. And I'm sceptical about the ability to turn talking the talk and signing up to targets into walking the walk and doing stuff. So let me put some perspective on this. Climate change is global. It will, it will happen in London. It will happen in Glasgow. It will happen in my local village. But the big story is that carbon emitted anywhere is what counts. And if you look at the last 30 years, what we've done is added two parts per million to the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere. That's the only number that matters. 
every single year since 1990, including last year. So we have made not the slightest dent, not even the financial crisis, not even COVID has made a dent in adding two parts per million every single year as we've gone through uh, from uh, 1990. We've had Kyoto, we've had Copenhagen, we've had Durban, Paris and now Glasgow. And none of them in the past have made an iota of a dent. So the idea that one more heave on the same approach is going to do the job, it might contribute. I'm not against COP26 at all. I just don't think it's going to be the great turning point, the point of world leadership where we all turn onto another page. You know, we will cross 1.5 degrees probably one year, in at least one year between now and 225. 1.5 degrees is for the birds. The task is, is there any chance of holding it to two and if not three? So why have we failed? Why have we had 30 wasted years? Well, the answer is that what really matters, and it matters to you and me, if we want to no longer cause climate change, is our carbon consumption, not where the carbon was produced. You can get the emissions down in the UK pretty damn quick if you want to. Just close the rest of the steel industry, finish off the petrochemical industry, close that fertiliser factory and uh, hope that Brexit finishes off the rest of the car industry. Emissions will fall. But of course, global warming will go up if you import the steel from China and you import the cars from elsewhere and you import the petrochemicals. What matters is your carbon footprint. And when you look at the UK as the so-called poster case for reducing emissions, it's 80% services. We're deindustrializing. So what really matters for climate change is what happens in China, India and sub-Saharan Africa. And what's going on there? China's building more coal power stations now than we're closing in Europe and the US put together. It's increasing its coal burn. The world can't stand China increasing its emissions until 230 and perhaps getting to some number which is neutral by 250, 260. That won't do. And India following the same path won't matter either. So I'm in favour of a, a bottom up approach to this. I think we should pay the costs of the carbon emissions that we're responsible for in our consumption. I think there should be a border tax. We should incentivize the Chinese, the Indians, others, that they should pay the cost of carbon like we should too going forward. And I think that it's important that we recognize that we're responsible for a huge amount of the carbon in the atmosphere. And frankly, 100 billion per annum is pretty trivial. I mean, we spent 300 billion in one year on COVID, I think. So if we really want to crack this problem, we have to address the true carbon footprint. We have to explain why we have failed for 30 years to make a dent in the two parts per million per annum. We have to make major transfers. Oh, and on top of that, we have to stop trashing the natural world and its ability to absorb carbon. The Amazon is a net emitter of carbon now. So once you confront the nature of this global problem and work out where and how we should address it and confront our own personal responsibility for our carbon consumption and the less than pretty picture for the UK if we measure it in consumption terms rather than production, then I think you realise the sheer scale of the challenge. And the idea that the world leaders signing up to targets in Glasgow is going to be a turning point. No, it's important they do. It matters. But, you know, Russia, Saudi Arabia, America, each with over 10 million barrels a day oil produced. Biden asking, almost begging the Saudi Arabians to increase oil output. This is the reality of the world we're in. And we have to face up just how big this crisis is. And in that regard, 
I'm on the side of Greta Thunberg. I, I think it's more than blah, 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 but it isn't enough and it isn't a turning point. And sadly, I think that um, uh, though I'd love to lose this vote, I think the reality is that you should vote to recognise that while it's important, it's not a turning point. Dieter, thank you so much for those powerful words. A very different mood from that struck Keith by you. But Dieter, could I come to you first about your, if not gloomy prognosis, certainly, as you say, your sceptical prognosis about where we are. How do we change the debate that we are having? Because I was reading just this morning about India's attack on the net zero plans, not taking into account that the West, according to many critics, can rather loftily claim to want to go to net zero just at the time when the emerging markets need to feed people, need to fund their health services, need to put in transport links. And at present, fossil fuels are the only way that it appears possible to do that. Does there need to be a more serious debate about what economic growth is? And do you have some sympathy with those emerging market economies that say, it's easy for the West to make the types of arguments it's making. Well, well, let me say one point at the outset, and forgive me putting it very forcefully. I'm fed up with people saying you're pessimistic or optimistic. I'm just stating the facts. The facts are we added two parts per million last year to the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere, and we've done it every single year since 1990. The facts are that China's building lots and lots of new coal power stations, and the burn that 80% of fossil fuels making up the world energy is not going down. That's just facts. And it's a fact that the Amazon is a net emitter of carbon and it's burning down in, in part, step by step. So that's just where we are. And I think realism, recognising the facts, is absolutely crucial to making a step towards solution. Now, I have deep sympathy with the Indians. The Indian minister said in the, in, in the summer, it's all very well for you guys who put all that carbon up in the atmosphere. Remember, that's our carbon from the Industrial Revolution still up there in the atmosphere. You put it all up there. You developed on the basis of all those fossil fuels. And now you want us Indians to forego that development. That isn't fair. And what it really says is it goes right back to the Brundtland report where all this started. This is a north-south issue. If you really want to crack climate change, you have to crack it in the developed world. You know, Nigeria will have more people than Europe pretty soon in this century, right? You have to crack it there and you have to take those people on board in that process. And the honest answer is that it's no good cutting aid from 0.7 to 0.5. This requires really big fiscal transfers. And if you're not prepared to do it, well, be honest, we're not going to crack climate change. Because we can't just preach to them that they shouldn't behave like we behaved in the past. So I'm sympathetic. I think this can be done. It's not just about fiscal transfers. It's about incentivizing them to produce exports which are not carbon intensive. And that's what the carbon border adjustment's about. That's what carbon consumption's about. Thank you, Dieter. Keith, can I come to you? Neither optimistic nor pessimistic, Dieter says, just fact-based, that this isn't a turning point that this, the facts prove that for all the enthusiasm that businesses may now have to talking the talk, at least, if not walking the walk, as Dieter says, that you are not, the business community is not going to be able to affect change to any significant 
degree unless there is a total change in the way we run our economies and, frankly, the way that businesses presently make profit. I'm not going to argue or disagree with with, you know, with what is or isn't the fact. I mean, what Dieter said, those are the facts. That's it. That's, you know, that's where we are. And, you know, and we need to face up to that. But I think what's, I think what's changing now is, is actually the involvement of uh, communities, of civilians, the involvement of business, the involvement of finance. Okay. Now, this is mainly in the developed, the already developed world, but you see it and it's starting to have an impact and it is starting to affect. I mean, why, why is it the UK has signed up to net zero 2050? You know, that's, you know, and you see it right across every political party. Why is it virtually every company you come across in the UK is aligning itself in some way with the green credentials? Okay. Why is it we see the finance community, you know, and investment companies now looking at who do they invest in? Where do they put their money? How do they show that they're making progress? So it shows you things are moving and things are shifting. And I think that's one of the big changes that's happened over the last uh, two or three years is that that push is starting to take place. I think the, the big challenge is, is to keep driving that forward and to drive it forward at pace and use it as the example, and, and your people call it leadership, whatever you want to call it, as the example as to how do you then accelerate that process in the developing world? Your Dieter's absolutely right. We can't sit here and be holier than thou. Your climate change to date was caused by us. It was caused by the developed world, without a doubt. And you can't, therefore, uh, say to the developing world, tough luck, you missed the boat, you don't get any of this. But what we need to do is to find ways to help them accelerate their way through that process so that as they develop, as they grow their economies, it doesn't have the damaging impact we had. And you can do that through finance. You can do it through technology. You can do it through innovation. Now, you know, and I think, you know, it's easy to, you know, to, to, to look at countries like China and people will criticize China left, right and center. It's a nice, easy target. Let's all have a pop at China. The Chinese have made quite a lot of change. They've made quite a lot of movement. You know, China's one of the biggest renewables markets in the world, if not the biggest renewables market in the world. They're starting to massively invest in the technology. And it's about how do we encourage them to do that faster and shift that faster while still growing their economy? And there are good case studies from Europe, from the US as to how you can keep growing an economy and tackle climate change. And that's where we need to get to. But there are also a lot of countries out there in the developing world where we will need to put in a huge amount of financial support to, to help shift and make that shift without a doubt. You're willing to give up some profit to manage that, Keith? You're willing to tell oh, your you shareholders? You're willing we're, to tell your shareholders? We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're investing in the future already. We're investing in it. And you know, all of those investments are... are uh, Pushing, pushing the boundaries. We're investing in new innovation, investing in new technology, investing in things like green hydrogen, et cetera, because that will hopefully help, you know, help the change and help shift and help make the change. And then it's about how do we take the, you know, the best bits of what we've done in countries like the UK and help to use that to help other countries make the same shift, you know, by creating the right frameworks. You know, how do we get the investment flowing into those countries to help make the shift and help make the change? And you know, there are great lessons we can learn from countries like the UK, from across Europe, to help do that because it's been a big, big success. If you you know, you look at the size and the scale of the renewable sector right across the whole of Europe, it's it's worth billions. That's a great thing. It's a great showcase. 
So how do we do it? How do we replicate it? How do we get other countries to buy into it? How do we get them to shift along that line? And that's the thing. And as I say, I think the best thing that's happened in the last couple of years is the buy-in of finance, the buy-in of companies, and the buy-in of people. You know, when, when Paris 2015 was agreed, how many people were talking about climate change? How many, how many marches were you seeing? How many demonstrations were you seeing? How much buy-in was it? How many companies did you go see waxing lyrical about their green credentials? There's been a colossal change since Paris in terms of all of that. And that helps to keep pushing us in the right direction. And I think that's why I think COP26 is different. COP26 isn't just about politicians trying to sit and batter out an agreement. It's actually about companies, about financiers, about investors showing here's the way forward. Here's how we change this. Here's how we deliver it. Thank you, Keith. Well, look, you two have set off a whole host of questions with your passionate arguments. Thank you so much for that. Let's start running through them. Let's try and keep our answers as tight as we can so we can get through as many as possible. So the first is, how far is a carbon market practical or effective at a national level, if not realizable internationally. Dieter, is it practical in terms of affecting the carbon footprint, the point you make, at a national level? So the fact is we, we have carbon markets, they work, okay? And there are lots of implicit carbon markets too, where you fix permits or you have regulations which have an effect on price. Everything has an effect on cost and costs have an effect on price. So that's great. But you can do carbon markets much better than we currently do. For example, why don't we have the same carbon price for agriculture, which is by far the most important in terms of relative carbon pollution in this country? 11% of emissions for 0.5% of GDP. You know, why don't we have the same price for heating? Why don't we have the same price for transport? You know, just by having particular sectors which are politically sensitive or lobbied for or whatever protected. So we can generalize that. But what I want to do is what the EU is going to do, which is to have that price not just for what we produce domestically, but what we import as well. And again, it's another thing I'd love to have on the agenda at uh, COP26, a genuine carbon internationalization of pricing would be the way to do bottom up agreements. And that's a way of facilitating all the great things that Keith's talking about and all the great things his company does. But we can't think that this is going to be solved in the UK. It's important what we do. And it's important the British public know that when they say they don't want to cause any more climate change, they're not deluded to think net zero territorial carbon production targets mean that. The CCC, the climate change, are completely wrong about that. So carbon markets, absolutely crucial. They incentivize businesses. They cut through lobbyists. But let's generalize them. Thank you, Dieter. Keith, a few brief thoughts on carbon market and how it affects particularly the business that you run? Yeah, look, like, you know, Dieter's correct. They work if you put them in place. I mean, I think that the issue for you know, for the UK and, and, and for, for any country, you know, the UK targeted generation first. So we created frameworks and markets to make this happen in the generation environment, shift from coal to gas to renewables. We then kind of started looking at transport. How do we make transport shift? Then we're going to start looking at heat. And the problem is we haven't got time to do it in a serial fashion. We need to be doing it all together. That's the big challenge. And we've still not tackled the thorniest topic of all, which is food, agriculture, food production. 
So we need to get our own house in order from that point of view, without a doubt. And that's why if you create an entire carbon market, then you price carbon right across the whole of the market. And we do need, that's where we need to end up getting. We've, you know, in the UK, we've shied away from that and other markets have shied away from it as well. But we will have to get there at some point in time. We have to create an equivalent price of carbon. Thanks, Keith. This is a question from John Newham. Can COP26 succeed without a senior presence from China? Dita? No. Um, you know, China is 28, 28% of world emissions, right? Building more coal power stations than the UK, Europe and the US are currently closing. Financing, I think it's 17 coal stations in, in Vietnam, uh, uh, several of them in Pakistan. And, you know, it's true they have the biggest renewables uh, sector. Why? Because they're 1.23 billion people and it's an economy that's doubled every seven years. But it has the biggest coal. It's 50% of the total world coal burn. So without tackling the Chinese question, it's like without tackling the Saudi Arabian, Russian and American oil production question. If you don't you put those on the side, say, oh, well, we'll deal with those later. You haven't had a turning point. You may have made progress. You may have incentivized lots of things that Keith rightly stressed. But that isn't a turning point. And God forbid people walk away from COP and the prime minister or someone says, problem solved. Now we can move on. Cracked it. That's really dangerous. Let's see what Boris Johnson says at the end of uh, the events in Glasgow. The the, the statements made by politicians after each of the previous COPs. Chris Hewn came back from Durban, a triumph. We've turned the work, turned the corner. In fact, every single cop has turned the corner for politicians as they walked away. I could almost write the speech for Mr. Johnson now, and he can just re- reproduce it. <laughs> I was, uh, Peter, yes. I, I, I was, I, I was with the Prime Minister earlier on this evening in Downing Street, and uh, at a. An event, and he he likened COP twenty six to the to the end scene of a James Bond movie, where James Bond sitting on a <laughs> sitting on a thermal nuclear missile uh, with the dial counting down, and we had to stop it when it got to double zero two six, as opposed to double zero two seven. But yeah, well, let's hope that uh, he look, doesn't fall it, into you know, Dieter's trap. Yeah, and, I mean, I think, and you know, the, you know, the counter to Dieter, I don't disagree with Dieter, but I think it, if you look at COP twenty six as being a formal political national agree your international agreement then without china it's incredibly difficult but i still think cop 26 can deliver so much even without the political agreement and all the countries signing up to the political agreement and in terms of china yes massive coal production but as i say a massive renewables business and i think by twi- by you know by the end of this year i think sort of 39 40% of electricity production in china will come from renewable sources so they are making a big shift now, it's not as fast as we want. It's not as much as we want. But we need to encourage them to go faster. Fabulous. Thanks, Keith. A point, a point in the chat from Christopher. I, sorry, Christopher, I can't see your whole surname. Very little point in rubbishing COP26. It's not great, but it's the only game in town. Let's support it. That's a very good point, but that's not a question just at the moment. But let's go to the next question. Dieter agrees with that. Thank you, Christopher, for that point in the chat. But I just wanted to ask this question, which is backing you, Keith, from your initial comments. Failure is not an option. I wholeheartedly agree, yet by all relevant measures, we have been failing. The urgency of the pandemic has shown how governments and the media can influence thinking and by implication behavior. Why is that influence slow to be used 
for positively influencing behaviour on this most critical emergencies of our time. Keith, we simply haven't done enough to influence the public's opinions and behaviours on this issue. Yeah, but I think I I honestly think that has massively changed over the last wee while. You know, and I think you're you're you you're, you're going to see massive demonstrations through Glasgow. And uh, you know, and the UN encourages demonstration through Glasgow, which I think is one of the great things about COP that there are actually formal demonstration days to to so the politicians see the viewpoint of the citizens of the country and the citizens of the world. And Greta Thunberg will lead the youth demonstration through the centre of Glasgow, whether there are forty or fifty thousand people who take part in it. And then the following days, the main demonstration day as well. And again, you'll see probably up to. 100,000 people take part. So it shows you the public are absolutely engaged in this topic. I have a wind farm outside Glasgow. We get 100,000 people a year coming to visit a wind farm. And that's mad. It's nuts. Completely bonkers. Okay, People are engaged in it and they (laughs) like it. So I think the public are shifting this debate. That's why companies are shifting the debate. They see their customers. They know what their customers want and it shifts the debate. That's why you're seeing investment now being shifted and you're on the incentive for investors to stop investing and putting money into carbon-intensive companies and carbon-intensive economies. Why are you seeing BP invest in offshore wind? Why are we seeing Shell invest in offshore wind? Because they see the future. They need to get involved and they know they need to change and they know they need, they need to shift. That That is people power. That's being done because of consumers. And so I think the more people get involved, the more they push the debate, the louder they shout, the better this gets. Thank you, Keith. Question for you, Dieter, from Caroline Jessel. If the COP process is ineffective, what would you put in its place? I'd keep the COP process going. I mean, most of what Keith says, I agree with. I'm not against COP. I'm simply not saying it's I'm simply saying it is not a turning point where people can walk away and say this was the great success. Okay, so what should we be doing? Well, I think we start from you and me and we being the polluters. It's our consumption that causes businesses to produce stuff for us. You know, it's no good blaming Shell and BP for producing petrol and oil and then putting it in your car. You know, it's for us. They make they make the stuff for the plastics. So I start with carbon consumption. And in my book, I say that everyone should sit down and write their carbon diary and show what it is they're consuming. And then I think we should apply particularly back to the early question, carbon pricing implicitly and explicitly to that carbon, whether it's produced domestically or not. That means that we will no longer be causing climate change. And it means we can build a bottom up coalition of the willing. And it means we give direct incentives to China and other countries to reduce their carbon emissions because their exports to us and to the United States, when they arrive at the border, they have to pay the carbon tax unless they have the equivalent carbon policies at home. And so you create a direct economic incentive for people to gradually join the coalition of the willing. And as a side, stop signing trade deals with countries that are in clear bits of the Amazon to raise beef to export to Britain while we close down our beef industry uh, because it produces methane here. But we don't care about methane in the middle of the Amazon cleared lands. So think about it as a coalition of the willing build up gradually rather than trying to get the whole world to sign up to what they're not going to sign up to at Glasgow. Uh, Meaningful targets top down. And remember, They're not legally binding, right? The only thing that's legally binding is you have to come up with a target. You don't have to do it. And what we've known from the past, both for the monies for the climate fund, 
never been provided properly, but we also know that a large number of countries don't actually mean it when they say this is our target in 30 years time. So George Orr, great, keep them at it, but don't expect that to work. Come from the bottom up at the same time, and then we've got a chance of making progress. Thank you very much, Dieter. Some nice positive chat coming in for you as well, which is good to see. A couple of questions have come in on the same area. I'm going to try and bring them together because we are running short of time, um, which is, of course, very upsetting. But there are really questions about this notion. Someone asked about degrowth, i.e. the notion that economic growth is held above all else. And another question says things like COP26 and the Paris Agreement are pointless when capitalism relies on the exploitation of the natural world to work. Is it even possible to reverse climate change in the current economic and political system? Now, Keith, you have to be brief. And then Dieter, you also have to be brief. It's a big question. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, that was a, a huge, a huge ruddy question. Okay. Look, yeah, yes, it is possible. You know, we, you know, we're growing the economy in the UK and we're tackling climate change in the UK. We're growing the economy in the UK and we've, we're decarbonizing the entire generation sector. We are starting to decarbonize the transport sector and we're growing the economy in the UK. We're now starting on the path to tackle heat and we'll do it and we'll still grow the economy in the UK. So the, the, they are not mutually exclusive. OK, you, you do need to. And we're starting to look at it. How do you work on that? How it ripples? You know, and Dieter's made this point. How does it ripple down through the supply chain? Because there's no point in just decarbonizing in the UK and just dumping over everybody else. You need to make sure all the way down through your supply chain, you decarbonize it. But it is absolutely economically possible to grow an economy and decarbonize at the same point in time. It is perfectly possible to have sustainable economic growth. That is not the same thing as GDP economic growth. And the source of economic growth is new ideas, new technologies, the sort of thing that cracked the uh, code of the genetic code of the virus in less than uh, 10 days in Oxford this year. So, yes, we need all of that. And any economic system uh, can throw up ideas and new technologies. But GDP does not measure that. Sustainable uh, is what we want to look for. Thank you, Dieter. Thank you, Keith. I've got to come to closing comments in a moment. Thank you so much for all your questions. Sadly, too many to get through, but we got through a large number. So thank you for that. Dieter, could I come to you for a two-minute summation of where you think the debate is? And then I'll come to you, Keith, and then wonderful audience that you've been in the chat and in the questions. We'll be back to you to ask you the same question that we asked at the beginning of this session. And let's see if anyone has changed their minds. But Dieter, kick us off. Two minutes, closing remarks. So uh, as I said at the outset, this is a vote I wish I could lose. Uh, correctly lose. But I don't think so. What really scares me is the politicians think they fixed it by signing a lot of top down targets uh, and uh, showing world leadership when, in fact, they haven't. And they walk away and our prime minister engages in some more cakeism. Uh, it's all very well to say people care about climate change. I think they generally do. I think Keith is right about that. But when you ask them, will they pay the cost and the price of dealing with it? No, they want cheap flights uh, and they want um, uh, uh, um, politicians to bear down on the price of petrol and so on. Biden in particular going down that route. So I'm really scared that people walk away from Glasgow, declare a turning point as they have done at every previous COP and think they've cracked it. 
And actually what happens is next year it's two parts per million and it's two parts per million the year after. So I think the danger is that we claim plan A works, even though one more heave has no good reason to believe that it's going to make much difference and close off plan B and close off our need to engage in our own carbon consumption and to really deal with the issues of incentivizing with respect to China, India and sub-Saharan Africa. That's where climate change will be determined. And the question for COP26 is, is it going to make any difference to the parts per million going into the atmosphere? And how is it going to change the behavior in those three areas and Russia and Saudi Arabia and in the American oil and gas industry? And I think important, but not a turning point. Thank you so much, Dieter. Keith, your two minute closing statement. Fantastic. Look, thank you. So, yeah, nobody ever said this was going to be easy. You know, I, I have, and I'm sure you all do as well, I have difficulty getting a family agreement around who's going to empty the bins and do the dishes. You know, so trying to get 200 countries to agree and sign up to, to a commitment is a phenomenally difficult thing. But just like doing the dishes and putting the bins out at home, someone will take a lead and someone will show the way and it will get done. And that's the way we need to view tackling climate change and COP26. The difference about COP26, as I said, is I think the shift in people's behavior, the shift in people's engagement with the topic driving companies and investors to get involved. And this is no longer just about governments. It's no longer just about a government agreement. And whether the governments do or don't agree is not the only measure of success at COP. I started with a quote, and I'm going to finish very, very quickly with a quote. And this one's from David Attenborough. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we're doing to our planet, and never before have we had the power to do something about it. The future of humanity depends upon us. Keith, thank you so much. Powerful voices. I've certainly been energized by this debate. Now it's back to you, the audience, to decide on that question we asked at the very beginning. Do vote now. Yes, COP26 is a turning point for the planet or no, COP26 is not a turning point for the planet via the poll appearing on your screen. And if you're still not sure, do vote undecided. Now, it's going to take a little while, a few seconds to get those answers in. Just to remind you again, this is the first in the Intelligence Squared Energized series in partnership with Iberdrola. I've loved it. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And if you have, or even if you haven't, do still join us at our next event, Tuesday, November the 16th, to discuss whether electric vehicles are the future of green transport and we'll be holding further debates on wind farms and the economics of sustainable energy. So there's a huge amount to discuss and to look forward to in this energy, in this Intelligence Squared debate. So it was 36-36 in our initial discussion. 36 yes, 36 no. The final numbers are in. Yes has now fallen back to 23% and no has bounced up to 64 with only 13% undecided. So Dieter and Keith, you have focused minds with your wonderful, passionate debate. Thank you so much to both of you, Dieter and Keith, for such a interesting and informed debate. It's great to hear from actual experts in the facts. Thank you to the audience for joining us for this debate. And thank you to Intelligence Squared and Iberdrola 
for hosting the first of this series. With that, it's good night from London and have a good evening or rest of the day wherever you are. Goodbye. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.